Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's program, Elon Musk reveals his plans to colonize Mars. Is this blue sky thinking, or can we really make it to the red planet? The actual scale of this with hundreds of boosters and dozens of spaceships is you know, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And as the European Space Agency's Rosetta Space Probe mission draws to a close after 12 years, we'll hear about the final signals from the project scientist, Dr. Matt Taylor. Getting a perfect profile as we approach the comet to investigate the low atmosphere, the low coma of the comet that we've never been in before. Also, will we all be conversing with our digital gadgets with a voice interface? And will those gizmos be spying on us? Our technology editor assesses. In, in former times, you had the spooks putting microphones in, into your living room. Now you, you do it yourself. This week, Elon Musk, the founder of the private spaceflight company SpaceX, revealed his grand plan for the next step in his mission, colonizing Mars. In his address to the International Astronautical Congress in Mexico, Mr. Musk explained how we might soon become a multiplanetary species. Oliver Morton, our briefings and essays editor, and our science correspondent, Tim Cross, are here today to bring us back down to Earth and assess Mr. Musk's plans. Tim, it's not the first time that someone's wanted to go to Mars. How does Elon Musk plan to do it? It's not the first time, you're right, but this is the first time that someone's tried to make it cheap. At the moment, spaceflight is incredibly expensive, and one of the points of founding SpaceX in the first place was to bring the cost of spaceflight way, way down. This is sort of the final extension of that. So he wants to use all the technology that SpaceX has pioneered, plus some new stuff that it's still working on, to bring the cost of going to Mars from something in the region of billions of dollars per person to hundreds of thousands of dollars. And how can you do that? What what does it require? The main thing it requires is fixing one of the long-standing problems with rockets, which is that traditionally they're single-use machines. For the past few years, we've talked about it on Babbage, SpaceX has been working on fixing that, on making as much of the rocket as possible reusable. So you have the booster stage, a little bit of fuel is left in it after it's, it's uh, after separation. It uses that fuel to fly back uh, and land either at the landing pad or in the middle of the ocean or something like that. And what Musk wants to do essentially is to build a much, much bigger rocket that's capable of doing the same thing. That gets the cost of getting into orbit way, way down. You can launch a spaceship into orbit. Once it's there, you can provision it, get it ready for the long trip and send it the hundreds of millions of kilometers out to Mars. And how long a trip would it be? Well, it depends how you want to define it. So a lot of people assume that what happens when you go, because this is how we did Apollo, is that you put the astronauts on top of the rocket and you send them straight to wherever it is they're going. This isn't Musk's plan. Again, for reasons of trying to keep the cost down, the first step in the mission will be to send a spaceship into orbit without any crew on board, without any fuel, without any cargo, and then leave it there. And because you have these cheap reusable booster rockets, you can then spend the next few weeks or months flying fuel, flying cargo, and ultimately flying people up to the spaceship. 
And when the orbits of Earth and Mars align, which happens roughly once every two years, you, you minimise the time it takes to get there. That's when you set off. The flight time would apparently be something on the order of six months. So from the first launch to actually arriving on Mars, you're looking at many, many months, possibly a year. So what happens when you get there? So the plan is for the spaceship to land directly on the Martian surface. You use the Martian atmosphere to do aerobraking. You slow yourself down by flying through the atmosphere, which generates a lot of heat. Your settlers get out and do whatever it is they do. But the next crucial part of the plan is that you have machinery on Mars. You either bring it with you or it's placed on Mars before you got there that uses carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere, of which there's plenty, and water ice from the Martian surface, of which there's also a good deal, to produce another lot of fuel that you can then pump back into the spaceship's tanks so you can take the spaceship itself back to Earth orbit, ready to pick up the next lot of colonists. So the idea is to make every part of the system as reusable as possible. And because it's a barren piece of rock, you have to create your own little homes that are airtight and pumping oxygen. Well, yeah, so this is the thing. I mean, his speech was very much focused on the transport end of things. So he said, we see ourselves as the Union Pacific Railroad, and once you get to California, what you do is kind of up to you. And this is a bit of an oddity about the speech, because he thinks that humans need to be a multi-planetary species. He thinks we need not just a base on Mars, but a proper civilization on Mars, something that can sort of sit there and go about its own business without any help from Earth. But it was kind of light on detail about how something like that might happen. I think light on detail is being generous. The speech really says it assumes that individual people will want to go to Mars because there are individual people who want to go to Mars and that's true and it also talks about the existential need for humanity to be on many different planets which is something that you know is a staple of science fiction but isn't necessarily a particularly compelling idea but it doesn't talk very much about what they'll be doing on Mars that will make them into a self-sustaining branch of civilization, or indeed a civilization themselves. It says very little about how they'll deal with the health aspects of living on Mars. I mean, among other things, the Martian soil is like laced with poison, which is problematic. Uh, no one knows whether humans can actually carry pregnancies to term in low gravity, such as you get on Mars. No one knows how human children develop in low gravity. So there's an awful lot that's not in that talk. Is it in the nature of being a an entrepreneur not to have all the details but to have a vision that people rally around? Obviously it's in the nature of being an entrepreneur not to have all the details, to know exactly where the strategic or just contingent opacities in your discourse have to go. But at the same time uh, Musk isn't talking about doing this just entirely off his own bat. He does talk about using all the whatever capital he has accumulated to do this, but he also talks about a large-scale public-private venture along these lines. And large-scale public-private ventures tend to require something slightly more by way of a, of a rationale in the near to medium term. So it gets to the question of why he believes we should do this. Well, I think there are two parts, one of which I think is laudatory and one of which I think is rather less so. The laudatory thing is just that people want to go to new places. And the idea that this is a sort of like natural outside urge to the other is quite a powerful one. And I think most of us with some Western romantic blood in our veins can see some of that. The more disturbing bit is this idea that there's a real worry that life on Earth is going to go extinct or that humans are going to go extinct. And this seems to me to be kind of trumped up and not particularly convincing and kind of skeezy because, you know, if you really worry about threats to life on Earth, then kind of better to put all your effort into the threats on life on Earth rather than say, and let's build a bolt hole. Yet he's going to build it. The next question, of course, is... How will he pay for it? Unlike other people who've talked about this, I mean, 
26 years ago, a man called Bob Zubin put up a very interesting plan for going to Mars at another IAC meeting. There is a difference here that, you know, SpaceX is a big company that actually does make money. And when Mr. Musk talks about investing sort of like 300 million a year from SpaceX in developing these things, that's not enough to do the whole project, but that's actually, you know, that's a real development budget. And the fact that he's made it very clear that he's not going to take SpaceX public in any time soon means that presumably he thinks he can get the existing private investors in the company to sign off on that. And since the company has always been based on the idea that Elon wants to go to Mars, it's not unreasonable to think that the investors will stomach quite a lot of that. So the actual scale of this with hundreds of boosters and dozens of spaceships is, you know, unlike anything we've ever seen before. $300 million a year does buy you a certain amount of spaceship development. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very much, Tim. Thanks, Ken. Is Elon Musk right in his thinking that we should use Mars as a backup colony? Would you want to be one of the colonizers of the Red Planet? Or do you think the whole plan is insane? Well, join the conversation by emailing us at radio at economist.com. Later this week, the space probe Presetta will end its 12-and-a-half-year journey, making its final descent into the comet it has been orbiting and reporting on since 2014. Rosetta will make a controlled descent up to the surface of the icy mass, which is currently cruising out towards the orbit of Jupiter. We spoke to Dr. Matt Taylor from the European Space Agency, project scientist on the Rosetta mission, about what we've learned. We're only starting to scratch the surface. We've got a good feel for some of the material that's come off of the comet. We've got used to this, this really alien body, the fact that it's got this head and this body, it looks like a duck. We've been looking at the, the, the primordial material that the comet re- retains, so the volatile material, the ices and that turn into gas that flow around the comet. So all of this we've discovered and, and, and we're putting into context of the evolution of the solar system. Yet he explained why the European Space Agency is calling time on Rosetta's mission. Now we're moving away from the sun, power is getting low, we are losing four watts of power a day, so we're really getting to a stage where we're switching things off. So ultimately, we are trying to do as much as possible before we get to a situation where there's no power and we can't even get a signal back from the spacecraft. Rosetta will be dutifully reporting until its sensors flicker out in its dying moments. So the region we're targeting to impact is a special region it's called the Matt region, and it has a number of pits. These are circular pits that are like sinkholes on Earth, and they give access to, through looking at their sidewalls, this primordial building blocks that we call goosebumps, these one to three meter lumps, which we think really are primordial in terms of how the comet got put together. And that's why we're aiming for that region, as well as getting a perfect profile as we approach the comet to investigate the low atmosphere, the low coma of the comet that we've never been in before, below two kilometers. That's where all the stuff happens. The coma becomes the coma. It goes from the ice of the nucleus to the gas of the coma with all the dust as well. Getting into that area is going to be fundamental in understanding more about this comet and how it works. And all its memories will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. Reference movie Blade Runner. So after dear Rosetta is laid to rest on the comet, what's next for the project? It's key to understand that Rosetta operationally will end, but the mission itself will continue in the science. That's the whole reason we went there, to to understand the comet, to understand this comet, other comets, and their place in the solar system. And we've just scratched the surface of the science, and we're going to be doing science for decades. Last week, we explained how new digital techniques are allowing researchers to read ancient scrolls, even those burnt to a crisp. The one unrolled last week turned out to be part of the Bible. On Twitter, Mason Kelsey said... Too bad it wasn't another book from Plato's Dialogues or another Greek philosopher. I'm not too excited about another copy of the Pentateuch. 
but it is a fine example of learning how to read scrolls that are beyond repair. Take heed from the Stoics, Mason and Wait. Perhaps a more preferable scroll will be unrolled soon, like one we've actually never seen before. Don't forget you can give us feedback, comments and thoughts about all our content on Facebook or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Lastly, computers that we can interact with using just our voices has long been a staple of science fiction. From HAL 9000, the chilling onboard computer in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Open the pod bay doors, HAL. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. To Samantha, the sensitive virtual assistant in the film Her. I was thinking about the other things I've been feeling, and... I caught myself feeling proud of that, you know, proud of having my own feelings about the world. Ludwig Siegel is our technology editor. He's here today to discuss how developments in this area mean that these sorts of smart computers could work their way into our homes. Hello, Ludwig. Hello, Ken. Ludwig, when will we expect to see personal assistants that can listen to our voices and respond, and what will they do? I mean, we actually, we do have them. We have Siri, we have Cortana. Google's going to come out with one assistant. Problem is they're, they're not that good. What's changed is the delivery mechanism. I mean, so you use uh, these, these smart assistants with your smartphone, probably. And now we have other devices to, to use them. One is smart speakers, and the others are smart earbuds, like the AirPods that uh, Apple has announced. And, and so they those are great in conduit to these smart uh, assistants. And for example, Amazon's Echo, you just say Alexa, which is the wake up word, and then buy me toilet paper or, or order me this or tell me this recipe or what's the weather tomorrow. So it seems like Amazon just simply wants to sell us stuff. Why does Google want to get into this so we can search content? So when Amazon came out with the Echo, people thought, I mean, that's just a gadget with limited interest, but it's been actually quite successful. They will sell about 3 million Echoes this year, 10 million next year. And it's also kind of a cultural success in the sense that kids in particular treat this device as a new family member and, and talk about her or she, Alexa. Uh, so so it's, it's been quite a success. And that's meant that other companies have Alexa Envy or Echo Envy and, and are launching similar projects. So Google next week on October 4th is expected uh, to unveil Google Home, which is an Echo-type device, and Apple is working on a similar device to be ready next year. Okay, do you have a feeling like this is really going to work out, or is this going to look a little bit like Google Glass, in which it captures the imagination for the state of the art, other companies follow in the wake, trying to imitate it, but then the idea just sort of dries up? Google Glass was just so different from what we're used to. Uh, socially, so it was socially much more difficult to 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 make that successful. Whereas earbuds, people wear them. For example, they have speakers in their living rooms. So using voice is, I think, much more natural, accepted, uh, and so I, I expect these devices to be more successful. Okay, so we don't just have a new family member in the living room. We also have a spy. It's always listening to us all the time, and somehow perhaps that data is shimming back into a cloud. It sounds like the privacy implications are astronomical. Yes, that's a huge issue. I mean, you, you basically, in, in, in former times, you had the spooks putting microphones in, into your living room. Now you, you do it yourself. <laughs> and, and of course, Amazon has put some safeguards in there. So the Echo microphone doesn't switch on if you don't say Alexa. But I mean, as we know, these technologies, uh, if they can get hacked, they will get hacked. It's also a question how these devices are designed. Some of the earbuds in particular, they basically transmit the raw data to the cloud. Others process the data, the raw data, the, the sounds, the audio locally, and then only send out insights. So I think people will really have to think about this long and hard if they want to have that convenience. And these devices are great, but uh, if you uh, cherish your privacy, you better don't use these devices. Let me end on something optimistic. What are the interesting applications that are either being concocted or that you can imagine? Because I 
just can't think that it's going to end at buy me a book or what's the weather. No. So Amazon has turned Alexa into a platform. A platform means basically it's, it's a set of services developers, so third parties can then combine, recombine, and build what in Amazon Echo's case is called skills. And we know this from the smartphone. It's called apps. And a similar thing is going to happen with these assistants. So third parties will come in, developers will come in, they will write their own skills or apps or whatever it's called. That can range from an app or a skill that controls your thermostats to something where you can manage your stock portfolio. There will be a skill for that. I mean, it's, it's endless, the possibilities. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist in print or online. And don't forget to rate our podcasts. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.